0: Hi, I'm Declan Quigley and you're listening to Defying the Odds, a new podcast series brought to you by We Love Cycling Ireland. In each episode, I'll be speaking to a cyclist who, despite facing many challenges along the way, has achieved something truly exceptional. Joining me today is the incomparable and wonderful Dervla Murphy, a woman who, as she approaches her 90th birthday, can reflect on a life which includes 26 books of travel writing, memoir and diary. It's a rich body of work charting a life of travel and adventure, much of it aboard her trusty bike. She has invited us to her home in Lismore County Waterford, where her adventures began in in 1963, when she set off to cycle to India at the age of 32, fulfilling a childhood dream and cataloguing her experiences in her book, Full Tilt, ireland to india with a bicycle she traveled light on that trip but still found space for 12 pens and a gun acquired with the help of the lismore gardee with which she was forced to shoot a threatening wolf in rural yugoslavia it's a tale well told which bears repeating though these days uh, dervla likes to focus her attention less on the past and more on the future most specifically on what's in store for the planet her views on ecology having been formed through her remarkable life of travel Uh, dervla thanks very much for inviting me here today where it all began some 58 years ago. Uh, tell me, how are you keeping?
1: I am um, staggering on, you know, tor- tottering on is perhaps the best description of it. Hale and hearty? But
0: neither hale nor hearty, but still around and still enjoying being around. How do you reflect? I mean, can it really be 58 years ago since you began your yes, epic journey? Yes, that's
1: just what I was saying to my daughter Rachel the other day. It is extraordinary to think of it. You know, it was only about, what was it, 15 years after the partition of India. And the world was so much less taught then that I was able to cycle from Pakistan into India on New Delhi without a single roadblock. When you think of the horrors now, the, our militarised world, when you think of what is involved in crossing the border from Pakistan to India, it,
0: that makes me very sad. The perception would be that it would have been so much more difficult then, I mean, with passports oh, and yes. visas and all sorts of confusion.
1: We didn't need any visa for either Pakistan or India in those days.
0: It seemed epic, though. I mean, once upon a time to cycle from Lismore to Waterford probably would have seemed like an epic journey. <laughs> uh, and But now, I suppose there's a new generation are embracing the bicycle. They're yeah, discovering thank it. my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But but for you, your your adventures, back then, it was seen as being, I mean, I know you don't like the word trailblazer, but you you certainly were doing something a little bit exceptional. Would you agree?
1: Well, yes, I suppose it was exceptional. But on the other hand, when you think how important the bicycle was in the world I grew up in, born in, uh, in County Waterford in 1931, and very, very few motor cars to be seen. Uh, pretty well everybody had a bicycle. I mean, it might be an old granny, cycling in from Ballisag to to Lismore to do the shopping at the weekend go to the post office for her pension and then cycling back or more likely on the uphill road to Bally Sanger, she would be pushing her bicycle with her shopping hanging from both I can still see it from both handlebars and, mouse, and No sophisticated pannier bags in those days. You know, the distance from here to Thirls is 60 miles. And I can vividly remember during the uh, Harling Championship season, local men and boys, and some of the men would have been well into their 60s, if not older, getting on their bikes and cycling off to to the monster final, and cycling back that evening, getting home at about midnight. So they cycled 120 miles. And, and nobody... You see, that, that's why it struck me as a bit ridiculous when people began to write about my extraordinary journey and the distances I covered, because I grew up in a world where, if you were really keen on doing something, I mean, no, none of those people could have actually afforded transport to and uh, So if they wanted to see the monster file, they got on their bikes or didn't see it.
0: International transport, though, was fairly unusual, even in the, you know, as late as the early 60s. But your parents, I think, probably had informed your sort of adventurous side, because they met abroad. Your mum, I think, encouraged your adventurous side? I was
1: about, uh, just about 16. She, of course, was an invalid. I mean, completely uh, laid low at at the age of 24 by rheumatoid arthritis. So I never actually saw my mother standing up. And she was always in a bath chair. But... I suppose, partly on that account, she was always very keen on my travelling. And, you know, when I was about 16, that's when she first suggested that I should get on my bike and uh, educate myself by cycling around on the continent, Western Europe. And so that's really
0: where it all began. And it was as a form of education.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. Education and healthy exercise. And and also, um, because my parents had very little money, also just as the local men went to Thales and that saved made it possible for them financially, then it was possible for me financially, to cycle around Western Europe because all you need for cycling is a bicycle and enthusiasm. You do not need the thousands of pounds worth of equipment that cyclists now indulge in. I mean they really have been exploited in a way that makes me cringe when I see them with all this ridiculous gear and when I think of what was needed to cycle from County Waterford to New Delhi, and it, there were none of these. I mean, you just wore ordinary clothes, ordinary footwear.
0: You were a, you were obviously an experienced touring cyclist by the time you began that that uh, trip to India. But ah, yes. but it was um, I presume a, vo- a voyage of discovery. I mean, your mum had passed away at that point. You'd been a full time carer. Um, so you, right. did did it feel like a new freedom you'd been and unshackled
1: yes. yes but also a journey I'd been planning for so many years childhood dream since I got the first bike when I was 10 why India I think because and this is interesting when you think of children's communications now in those days school children were encouraged if they were lucky enough to have an enterprising teacher, they were encouraged to have pen friends on other continents. And I had a pen friend in India, a Sikh girl about five years older than myself, and we exchanged letters for several years. And she would send photographs of her family very few because it wasn't the days of everybody photographing everything, just enough to give me a feeling. And then I would send her back the equivalent. And anyway, she got me deeply interested in Indian history and the parallels between
0: India's fight for freedom and her own. And your parents had been involved in that in that fight for freedom. I mean, your dad in particular. Oh, his family in particular, yeah.
1: yes. Yes, well, just cycling along and realising that, you know, that it, it left you with such freedom. You didn't have to know in the morning where you were going to be in the evening. And for me, that would always spoil a journey. you know. I mean, what I really loved was... Getting up and not knowing when the sun came up, where you would be when the sun went down—that was the essence of travel. Yeah. And you see them all now booking ahead on their dratted computers
0: and things, so they know exactly where they'll be every night. Was was the trip uh, particularly arduous? Did you find it surprising or shocking, or worrying in any way? No, I, I mean
1: it was. It, it was. A, Physically, of course, it was a real. It was something that no cyclist nowadays would embark on, you know. That, for instance, I had the my gears removed on advice before I left, because I was warned quite rightly that the roads between Istanbul and the Khyber Pass were so rough that somebody as unmechanical, untechnological as I am. Uh, would have a very tiresome time with the uh, derailleur gears coming off every other minute. Mm. And indeed, I mean, the roads, when they, when they weren't roads in our sense of the world. Uh, of course, in Afghanistan, before crossing the Khyber Pass, I saw the both the uh, Americans and the Russians were already in there in Afghanistan building bits of road for their own military and oil resource purposes. Mm.
0: And does it sad? Sadden- I know Afghanistan is a country that's very, very dear to your heart. Very. I
1: yeah. can't bear to think of what's going
0: on there. It, it, it must sadden you what's dream, their experience us Deeply sad. And tell mm. us, I mean, what, do you, what did you learn? I mean, was that the... Was that the country to which, you know, you you would attach the greatest love for her?
1: Then I became very involved later on with the Tibetan refugees after I'd got New Delhi. Um, so I couldn't say, you know, one people really more than... And then when I was in Ethiopia, and again, that's another at the moment tormenting thing for me is watching what's happening in Michali, which is the town where I... City, really, where... Though there were no cities in our terms, but would have regarded itself then in Ethiopia as a city. Where I bought my mule for that trip, because that was on foot with the mule, not with the bicycle. Uh, So, I, I mean... The world, you know, when I look back over my years of travelling, the world has become so much more
0: violent. Are, are you somewhat bemused at the attention that you're... you're tra- I mean, obviously, you're, you're very well published. 26 books, I think it is.
1: When when I got back, of course, I was to, I couldn't understand what everybody was making such a fuss about.
0: You've never had a, a literary agent, I understand, and, and you you never have an advance. You simply... Produce a volume and. Well, I was so
1: lucky to get in with such wonderful publishers, John Morley. And that, of course, started in New Delhi and bicycles involved because I was cycling down one street in Old Delhi and an elderly. I mean, I thought then that she was elderly. Elderly English woman was cycling towards me. And I sit up and beg, bike, And then we stopped and got to know one another. And she invited me into a chai house. And when she heard about my... Journey to India, she immediately suggested that I should get in touch with her publisher. She was Penelope Benchman, and her husband was, had been, what was he, the cultural attache at the British Embassy here during the war. And so that's how that very happy story of my publishing life began. Yeah.
0: So talk to me about the, your you know that that first expedition. As I said, you you were an experienced bike rider and yes. you, you did know, but it, it 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 had its daunting aspects. I mean, I you know detailed and it's been oft, oft told the um, <laughs> having to shoot the wolf who looked a bit threatening in in Yugoslavia. Um, was that the first time that you felt threatened, or
1: oh, absolutely,
0: and w- in your experiences yes. and and. What did you think about your trip then? I mean, what was it uh how did you how did you imagine things were going at that point?
1: Well, I just thought at that point, because the weather was so severe, that I should have actually I should have waited a bit longer to start the trip. Because we know now we've moved it in, well into another century. We don't know, that that winter, uh, 62 to 63, was the coldest in the century. Yeah.
0: so you picked, a, you picked a good one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then, of course, later on, um, I mean, there were none of the dreadful experiences being attacked by men and all the rest of it that some of the pessimists might have forecast before i left Lisbon. i mean of course I had to beat up a few men on the
0: way but
1: um <laughs> there was nothing really alarming
0: where are we at now in the world i mean what have you learned or what do you feel is is the current situation i mean uh, driving down here in the car there's talk of um climate budgets and you know the changes that we need to make and how urgent They are. I mean, how concerned are you?
1: They're extremely concerned. But it's something I find very difficult to talk about with the younger generation because I feel that we, the older people, should, you know, consistently support the young in their... That wonderful young woman, whose name I can never remember... Greta, is yeah, it? Yeah, Greta
0: Thunberg. Yes. Yeah.
1: She and her followers. And, of course, they're my grandchildren, say that generation. It really is up to them.
0: Yes.
1: To poor things.
0: Did you feel like we've let them down a bit? I mean, I think you've probably got a clear conscience, but uh, others of your generation and, and... Of course
1: we have as a society, we've let them down But it's been going on for a couple of centuries. I mean, there's nothing new about the exploitation of the planet. But we're just hearing a lot more about it, fortunately. I'd say fortunately to to galvanise us, to do something about it. But then why I find it difficult talking to the young is because I don't want to... Let them hear the note of despair in my voice. Right. I don't see how, unless there is a complete revolution in the way that the world is, a real revolution in the way the world is organised, and unless the exploitation of the masses as you might say, unless that's given up and we stop persuading people to buy what they don't need and to waste. And, and then, of course, the, the, the question of travel, air travel, and, and the ship, the whole global trading thing that we've been reading about so much recently,
0: and do you think that when people travel now, they they don't know how to immerse themselves in the place they are? You know the the um, you know I mean again I've re- I've read that you're a little bit wary of of the influence of the mobile phone. There's no
1: point in my rabbiting on about that because the mobile phone and all it represents is here to stay. So it's a question of the younger generation developing the. Required judgment to use it responsibly.
0: We learn from our elders, though. I mean, in so many nations, they will respect the elders and and yeah. venerate and yeah. and yeah. lift their uh, their status. Do you think that mm-hmm. that's that's something that we do in in our society as it's currently constructed? Yes, but
1: I mean, a part of the the whole mad capitalist f- form of what they call it, the sociologist late capitalism you mean part part of that actually is is conditioning young people not to value what they have but to go out and grab something they don't have and have to pay money for and you know when you think of the the free the joy for which you don't have to pay of cycling and swimming and walking, and and it's all there yes. without expending a penny.
0: In, in your memoir, you sort of detailed some of the letters that your parents had written to each other when they were, uh, I think, engaged before they mm-hmm. got married, and it's 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 really I mean it's lovely, isn't it? I mean they're yeah. they're fantastic. But but you noted that there was absolutely no mention of material. Interests. I mean, they didn't seem to have any ambitions for money. Yes, or, yeah, exactly. They, they, but they did have uh, designs on a future in Lismore, mm-hmm. and they had the, They were very excited about the <clears throat> the potential for, for developing, you know, a yes. life, but with no interest in money.
1: Well, just as well they'd no interest in money. Since they hadn't had it, <laughs> and were unlikely ever to make had it. So, yeah, yeah, but. Yes, and I mean it's it could be all different now, of course, but in those days ninety years ago exactly my father was starting up as Warford County Librarian in Dunkarden and uh he had to he had to put up quite a strong fight to have the library headquarters established in Lismore because he argued then, actually it was his father, it was his papa, who was an educationalist, He's my favourite person when I was a child, and he argued that as the new Ireland, just born, the newborn man as it was developing, it should not concentrate things in urban or what could become urban centres, that the the opportunities, the employment, like the county library headquarters was never going to employ very many. But it was enough to make a big difference to a place like Lismore. And he insisted on... Um, the library being being founded then here in Lismore instead of in its original base in Dunghaugh.
0: Tell me, how, what what has your experience been of COVID and the pandemic? You
1: know, when it began, I was just living as I do now, so I was never uh, I was never inconvenienced except for not seeing the grandchildren or Rachel because everybody was isolated from everybody else. But otherwise it made absolutely no difference to me. I live here alone anyway. And I love my own company. And
0: Which was always the way, I think, yeah?
1: Never never made any difference, really. Um, except then I felt guilty that it was obsessing so many other people's lives. And it didn't make a blind bit of difference to me.
0: We have actually had a bit of an opportunity during this pandemic to explore the possibility of decentralising, taking it yeah, away? absolutely.
1: And I hear the... some cheering sounds, you know, that people I know of are thinking of uh, moving from Cork or Dublin uh, to a small house that they can afford in the country. That would be
0: wonderful. And in, and in its own way can have a knock-on positive effect on the environment and our relationship with the...
1: But that's where I'd like to see the bicycle coming in too because people could... For instance, they could have their... um, their new home cottage or little farmers or whatever it was, say about 30 miles from Cork or Waterford or Dublin, and they could very often cycle those thirty miles instead of people now think cycling thirty miles is something monumental. Yes. You
0: know? How did you feel when Rachel headed off on her own expedition? Because she Well that was wonderful mirrored delighted
1: the- when she went off at seventeen to India. Yeah. Yes. Now that was perfect. And you weren't concerned? Not even slightly. But again, you see that takes us back to changes, negative changes. I would be much more concerned now if one of the granddaughters was travelling around india- in the way Rachel did as a seventeen year old because things really have deteriorated yeah. i would i would be I, I never gave Rachel a thought you know. I knew she was well able to look after herself, but I, I think that things have become so, and I suppose we come round and as we so often must to the influence of the you know the mobile phone and the whole internet thing because a very um, serious scholarly survey was done of the influence of the mobile phone on rural, well on India generally but I think special emphasis on rural India and just horrendous the amount of sexual crime and rape attacks that you know and when they did their statistics and India is good as a country I think part of the Legacy from the British Empire—they're good at keeping statistics—and you could, when you looked at the two tables, you know you could see the increase in rape and violent sexual behaviour going up with the uh, availability of the mobile, particularly the mobile phone. Right, and of course, it was the price of the mobile phone was greatly reduced by whoever runs these things, so that youngsters in India could afford to have a mobile phone, perhaps long before their contemporaries in the in some western countries where the parents might have had more discretion and not allowed the children like Rachel didn't allow her girls to have a mobile or anything like that until they were sixteen.
0: When were you happiest?
1: I'd say I was probably happiest from the time when I don't know when I started cycling around the continent and then the trip to India, and then after that the time in Korg, and wonderful, that wonderful trek in Ethiopia.
0: I mean, you faced extraordinary danger on that trip. Tell us about that. But, I mean, I was aware that it remains one of your most memorable experiences in general, but that was a scary moment, yeah?
1: Oh, yeah, when I told them the shift were going to kill me. Is that the one you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes, but, I mean, that could happen anywhere any time. you think you're going to be murdered? you know? And
0: how did you get out of that little scrape?
1: Well, I didn't. I mean, they just decided they wouldn't, but, I mean, I knew they would behind me they were talking about what would they do mm. I mean would they mind because they don't I mean standing here and light like the stove was laid down they just had to do that these were the light hearted journeys I think of these earlier journeys yeah. and then when I went to uh, South Africa and then the Balkans and then, and then latterly to to Palestine, then things were much less light-hearted,
0: obviously. You evolved as a writer? Did you become more of a reporter? or?
1: Well, I suppose the real turning point there was when Rachel and I were on our way back from the trek through the Andes and we passed Three Mile Island as it was beginning to melt down. And... And I of course my mind was set because I've always written the travel books. The moment I got home and all everything was fresh in my mind, I was using my diaries and some of the letters I'd written. To friends, but on on the way home then from the United States, we stopped in Boston and friends there, people I'd, I'd known before anti nuclear people. Uh, they begged me to wait, not to write the Peru book immediately, but to write an anti-nuclear power book, which I did. And and that really was the turning point. You know, after that, nothing was ever as lighthearted as the earlier trips.
0: Right. And then you became a, a, a crusader?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. very very ineffective crusader
0: but yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. You know, yeah. Oh no, definitely I mean, And it goes those those little ripples will go on and on, you know. Yeah. Redder, I think I I may have heard you actually in another interview saying that you you saw yourself as some travel writers like to imagine the world in their own eyes and they'll be you know a little bit sort of cavalier or not cavalier but um you know they'll have a little writers authority to change the but you the were diary. Yes but you felt very much that you had a to write bit. down what you saw as yeah. you saw it.
1: and that's a generational thing again i think right. you know the people like Colin Thorpe and um Oh, who were the other? I remember there were four of us, at um, in not in Flor, not Florida, but what what's the, the famous literary festival in in Britain in, in in, near 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 Florida. Oh gosh, I don't care. Anyway, there was a debate on this question of accuracy and so on. And it was extraordinary how it broke up. There were four of us, Collins Hoover, myself, and two others. Two other very well known. And and there were four, a generation uh, younger. And we oldies, we were the ones who were all saying, no, we've got to stick to the... I mean, you could have all sorts of embellishments of describing scenery and be as poetical as you feel like it. That's the way it takes you. But the actual facts, and as Colin said, you know, we are, as travel writers, we are recording how a place was at a precise point in time. Snapshot. And it's quite important for you know, the future of people who are doing their historical research on Peru or Siberia, whatever it is, to be able to go back to travel writers, maybe, you know, 100 years dead, and read how things really were at the time.
0: So you headed off in 1963 uh, in what was... A changing Ireland, mm. just at the uh, on the cusp That's of right. economic change in the country. I, precisely.
1: Yeah. When I went off, then there was no television in Ireland. When I came back, and again that spread quite
0: quickly. I mean, you've continued to travel. I mean, you've probably a little less so recently, but your, your um travels extended all the way into the 2000s. Um, tell us a little bit about... Um... Well,
1: 2015 was when I... I mean, there's a book half-finished that I'll never get finished now about Jordan. That, was, that would have been my last book. And then the two before that were about Gaza and the West Bank, Palestine.
0: You made your trip to Siberia in, in what, two thousand two? You were seventy-one mm-hmm. then, so mm-hmm. still in the first flush of youth. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you headed off to Siberia, but you um and I went twice because I loved it so
1: much, and I realised how beautiful it would be in, in midwinter. I went back, and I mean to to live around Lake Baikal in midwinter is just it's so beautiful. But I suppose really my longest. Cycle was from Nairobi to Cape Town and then from Cape Town all around South Africa. See, I, I never counted miles, right. but I reckon that must have been much longer than the cycle too. I mean, you daily wanted what it—about six thousand miles? This must have been more like twelve
0: thousand. The highlight of your your life probably was that trip to to Ethiopian. In the 1960s, mid-1960s?
1: Yes. 66,
0: 67. But that one wasn't on a bike.
1: That was on foot with, with Jock.
0: Yes. Tell yeah. us about Jock.
1: <laughs> Jock was the mule I bought in my cali. That's why I'm so upset to see what's happening there, all the bombing and slaughtering going on. Jock was heavily.
0: Yeah.
1: And I mean, all the mules have, they don't deserve the bad reputation they have. He was adorable. And and, and then Juana was our mule in in the, uh, in the Andes. And she too, I mean, I fell so in love with her and she was such a loyal beast of part.
0: But would you describe yourself as fearless?
1: Yes, But not as brave, not as courageous. Those are completely different things. Because if you're fearless, you don't need to be brave
0: or courageous. So what does scare you? Does anything scare you?
1: I mean, I wouldn't be anything like as relaxed now, travelling in... Well, obviously you wouldn't be travelling in Ethiopia or Afghanistan or... Or indeed, what I said to the, about the granddaughters, that applied to me too. I wouldn't be as completely relaxed, and laid back in, in in India.
0: So, if you had any advice for someone who was embarking on a trip and was being properly cautious, I mean, how how would you? What advice would you give to someone the, the next intrepid adventure?
1: Well, I think you would you would, you would first have to study the. Uh, you know, the military situation in countries. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd say they could, apart from the, the sort of obvious, like, Alas, now, Sudan, Ethiopia, and a few other hot... But I'd say on the whole, probably, cycling all around Africa would be not too dangerous.
0: Oh, okay, right. So you think, yeah, yeah the circumference of Africa, yeah. Yeah, around, the, around mm-hmm. the coast, yeah, yeah. How do you travel? I mean, uh, would you you have any advice for people on how to experience the world?
1: Well, I suppose the main... I mean, again, this is personal. I think travelling on your own, not going with a friend or relation, unless child, perhaps. Uh, Because if there's more than one in, you know, in in the new country, the new situation, you... It is assumed that you and your companion form a unit, and if you're on your own, then you can merge in, and the people realise you trust them if you come on your own into their area.
0: It's easier to immerse yourself. In yes. The yeah. Right, right.
1: And I think the trust thing is important. Whereas if there are two of you, the and they know that you have each other to depend on. It's a completely different level of trust as compared to going into an unknown situation.
0: How would you sum up the value of of your travel and your work?
1: Well, just the fact that I have enjoyed life so much. I know that quite a lot of readers have enjoyed reading my books. So, and I'm glad that that has happened. But I don't think, I don't think apart from that, I've contributed anything except to myself enjoying
0: life. And is that not your first responsibility? (laughs) I've certainly enjoyed our chat and um, I'm very grateful to you indeed for... um, Uh, for having us here today and uh, thank you very much to our guest Dervla Murphy if you've enjoyed this podcast please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode to find out the latest news opinions and reports from the wide and wonderful world of cycling check out welovecycling.ie we love cycling powered by Skoda